Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students. Coming up on today's show... Anybody who doesn't have some sense of concern or uh, leeriness uh, uh, needs to have their head examined. We are becoming capable of doing things that we really need to question uh, going forward, like um, to what extent does the marriage of the human mind with uh, computerized devices, at what point do you cross some line that, uh, that makes it spooky? That was Dr. William Hansen, a pioneer in the field of medical technology and author of The Edge of Medicine. Today, Dr. Hansen shares real stories about the ways technology is changing the practice of medicine. All that and more on Radio Rounds right now. Pick on the radio round Welcome to Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everybody. My name is Shami Das. And I'm Casey McCluskey. We're glad you could join us today, whether you're listening on the radio or via our iTunes podcast sometime in the future. We're looking forward to a great show today. As many of you know, Radio Rounds is an entirely medical student-hosted radio show that aims to showcase the qualities of humanism and empathy in medicine. As we say each week, this show is for everyone, and we hope to provide some insight into the medical profession. Today we're going to talk about technology and medicine and how its rapid evolution is changing how physicians take care of patients. This is an interesting topic to us as medical students. We witness a lot of this technology in action every day in the wards. Exactly. Whether it be bedside ultrasound machines to diagnose life-threatening conditions, to using electronic medical records to coordinate patient care, technology certainly has revolutionized the practice of medicine. Today it's common to see robots that can make surgeries less invasive for patients and prosthetics that replace limbs that have been lost. The future of technology in medicine is bringing us to the edge of what we can imagine. Our guest today is Dr. William Hansen. He's the Chief Medical Information Officer at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of a book entitled The Edge of Medicine, The Technology That Will Change Our Lives. Avash Kalar, a member of the Radio Rounds team, spoke with Dr. Hansen recently. Let's listen. I'm wondering your thoughts on this idea that we hear a lot about uh, that physicians are losing their clinical ability because of an over-reliance on technology. What, what are your thoughts on that matter? Well, I think that there's probably some truth to that. Uh, you know, in the intensive care unit, it's very rare to see people carrying a stethoscope to undertake diagnostic evaluation of a patient. They tend to rely on something like the chest x-ray. And I can tell you that um, you can pick up as much, and in some cases, more information by listening to a patient's lung with a stethoscope than you can with a chest x-ray because you can differentiate one infiltrate from another using a stethoscope, which a chest x-ray isn't going to tell you. On the other hand, I think that these sorts of complaints about uh, advancing technologies and um, losing skills, this is not a new complaint. I think, you know, going back thousands of years, you can imagine Hippocrates (laughs) complaining that uh, he could 
get more information. This is sort of, I say this in a joke, but it's in a sense, by tasting the urine and, you know, these newfangled lab tests, you know, don't tell you as much information as he might have learned from his old approaches. And these sorts of uh, complaints have, have, have gone on eternally as new technologies have been introduced into our practice. Well, I thought that was a good example. Of course, Hippocrates did have an oath named after him eventually, so he <laughs> did something yeah. right. Uh, now, you know, you mentioned electronic medical records. I know you've written about uh, robotics as well as another example of technology. We have had a robotic surgeon here on the sh- show before, and he mentioned that NASA had been using robotics for decades before medicine started using robotics. Is medicine behind the curve at all with technology, uh, despite all these advances? Well, I think in some areas we're definitely behind. I mean, if you think about um, the secure transactions and the and the comprehensiveness of what you can do with a with a banking uh, interaction on the um, internet, versus the difficulty we have getting um, information transferred from one hospital to another about a single patient. Yeah, we're well behind other industries in that field. But on the other hand, uh, we're uh, very much in advance of. Uh, other industries are leading other industries and things like, uh, you know, genomics and um, those sorts of areas. So I think it's, it's what, that's the, uh, in a sense, the point that I was making about um, medicine being sort of schizophrenic. On the one hand, we have some very advanced cutting edge technologies, but in other ways, we're very archaic. You've written a lot about technology and how you've seen it change the lives, uh, not just of, of the physicians using the technology, but the patients as well. I know you did sort of touch on this a little bit with the proton-based therapy for eradicating certain, certain tumors, but give us a, a couple of more examples of how you've actually seen it on the front lines, actually changing patients' lives and their experience of medical care. Well, I'll give you an example that's been uh, published that is very dramatic and uh, actually happened at our hospital and uh, had to do with some research that's being done by a clinician at our place. Uh, I had a chance to meet a gentleman who had a cardiac arrest one night in his driveway. His wife had gone in the house, and he was found down in his driveway by his wife several minutes after he was after he had his cardiac arrest. She then ran in the house, made a phone call, uh, summoned the uh, paramedics who got there five minutes later, maybe ten minutes later, during which period of time she was not doing any CPR. So this gentleman was down without CPR for an extended period of time, was uh, resuscitated immediately by the paramedics who found him in VFEB. He uh, was then brought to a local hospital and then at her insistence transferred to our hospital where we instituted a hypothermic approach. So we cooled his body down, his brain down several degrees um, and put him in, you know, with a sedated uh, sleep. Typically, someone like that in the past would have been vegetative thereafter. Because we believe of this approach, uh, this gentleman then woke up two days later and wondered what the heck had happened to him. And that institution of total body hypothermia and brain hypothermia is, is um, a remarkable intervention that's really only taken hold in the last year or two in um in our hospital and now um, has been widely adopted in many big city um, ambulance crews. They'll take the patient to a place that has hypothermic therapy as, as a, an approach that they use. So that's an example of something that uh, was actually uh, brought to the clinical environment from what we do in the operating room. And I'll give you another example there. We have people who 
we are now able to totally stop their heart and we cool them down in the operating room to about 50 degrees uh, Fahrenheit uh, for a period of time on cardiopulmonary bypass and then we turn the bypass machine off so that we can work on the uh, proximal aorta without blood flowing through it and patients with aortic dissections or aortic aneurysms can be uh, handled with essentially no blood flow to their brain, although maybe we trickle a little blood through the, uh, the brain circulation in at, at that 50-degree temperature for a period of time, and then we rewarm them, and uh, we start their heart, and uh, in many cases those patients will transfer out of the ICU the following day and be totally normal neurologically thereafter. So these are examples of uh, very, very dramatic advances in medicine that um, have only come into place in the last couple of years. Do you see any limits to to this? Uh, you know, in the future, where, where do you what do you see next for medical technology? Uh, is it possible even to predict where we might be in ten, fifteen, twenty years as far as what we might be able to do? Well, I think I can say a couple of things with some reasonable confidence. I think if you look back in uh, medical textbooks and dictionaries of say a hundred years ago the taxonomy of diseases was very different from what we talk about today. So people uh, use the terms like coriza or consumption, and they were describing those diseases. They had no clear understanding of what the cause of the disease was, but they didn't really care to or need to because there was no concept that there might be some other cause. It wasn't, you know, they, they weren't investigating what's the what's the bacterium or what's the virus that's the cause of this disease. They didn't understand that there was a bacterium or a virus that caused those diseases at that point. So when they talked about a disease, they were talking about consumption as if it were the disease. And we now know that uh, consumption has physiologic underpinnings to it or physiologic underpinnings. We're now at a point where we talk about diseases like prostate cancer, breast cancer, diabetes, ARDS, as if they're the disease, but in all likelihood, 10, 20 years from now, that whole set of descriptions will be completely overwritten or changed because we'll have a better understanding of the genomic underpinnings for those diseases. So we're going to get a layer deeper, and what we think about as a disease process now, like prostate cancer, may be uh, five or ten different diseases with different genetic underpinnings as we understand them, 10 years from now, we'll have different treatments available. So we may look back on what we're doing today as being very old-fashioned and laughable. But I can say that pretty confidently. On the flip side to this, I guess what I'm wondering is, have you encountered people who are wary of the, all this technology in medicine? You know, we, we hear about, uh, I mean, people are, you know, don't want to ha- even immunize their children. You know, it's it's even at that level. What would you say to to someone who... Um, is concerned about this level of technology and whether or not there are any dangers associated with it? Well, I think anybody who doesn't have some sense of concern or uh, leeriness uh, needs to have their head examined, in a sense. I mean, I think that we're, we are becoming capable of doing things that we really need to question uh, going forward, like to what extent does the marriage of the human mind with... Uh, computerized devices, at what point do you cross some line that uh, that makes it spooky? So, you know, if you have implanted devices that augment 
human senses. You could imagine an implant that would allow you to see um, ultraviolet or infrared spectra. Uh, a blind person might get an implant that would provide them with sort of supernormal capabilities. So if you're using those capabilities or those techniques to treat somebody with an impairment, at what point do you then apply them to somebody who's normal? And these are the kinds of lines that we're going to we're going to be looking at probably in the rearview mirror because we won't know when we've crossed beyond the point that's um, potentially ethically challenging. We deal with things in the ICU and, uh, again, in cardiac surgery with the ability to uh, put an artificial heart in. You know, at some point, you have to wonder, are we crossing some line that that, uh, we ought to question? And we do run into problems like that uh, very frequently in the ICU where we have somebody who has an artificial heart but who's had some catastrophic um, brain injury and those sorts of problems. So I think, uh, you know, we, we need to be questioning these things continuously. Yeah, certainly it's important to consider those social, philosophical, and ethical issues uh, related to the technology. So I appreciate you bringing those points up. As a last question, you know, I mentioned this briefly earlier, um, this electronic nose that I know that you uh, have worked with. T- tell our listeners a little, a little bit about what that is. Well, so, you know, historically, I mentioned Hippocrates. The, the diagnosticians of yesteryear were very good at detecting a variety of diseases by their odor. So there's the smell of juicy fruit gum on the breath of a, a ketoacidotic patient is an example that we think about. Patients with liver disease have a characteristic breath odor. Patients with kidney disease, and there are any number of odors that have been described in association with disease processes. But, you know, uh, any mother will tell you that they can tell you that their kid is sick by smelling their breath. They, you know, they they, they know the smells. But we haven't had a, a tool to objectively identify uh, diseases by the smell of the breath or the smell of the patient uh, in the past. We're now at a point where we're uh, able to uh, use things like an electronic nose, which is a sensor array that can identify uh, different gases and uh, those gases may be associated with something like uh, a pneumonia, characteristic odors that go with gram-negative and gram-positive organisms. So electronic nose we've been working with is, is being used in the diagnosis of pneumonia on the one hand and uh, sinusitis on the other, which are bacterial diseases. But there's also good evidence that other uh, diseases uh, may be able to be picked up by um, analyzing the breath of uh, a, a patient as they exhale it into an electronic nose. As a last question, uh, you know, a lot of medical students are listening to this program right now. What advice do you have, uh, whether general or specific, for them as they go through their medical training and are starting to work with these new innovative uh, methods? What thoughts do you have for for them? Well, I guess I'd say about the technologies that um, one thing that I've found in my career is that there's a tendency on the part of young physicians, and that certainly included myself at several points in my career, to wholeheartedly adopt a new technology or a new technique or a new therapeutic approach as dogma as those new technologies sort of come into fashion. But as with fashion, many things in medicine uh, come into fashion and then fairly quickly go out of fashion as they're proven to be either ineffective or inefficient. So I think it's appropriate to to ad- adopt new technologies with some caution and um, 
you know, one of the things that's going to be clear uh, in influence in the future is the cost of new technology. So we're going to have to balance how much bang do you get for your buck with a new technology and if, in fact, the new technology really is bringing anything additional to the table. Again, uh, Dr. Hansen, thanks for coming on the program and sharing your thoughts about your, uh, the things that you've written about in your books and, and also the work that you've seen uh, working with patients. My pleasure. You're listening to Radio Rounds, and I'm Shami Das. You're listening to an interview by host of Osh Cholera and Dr. William Hansen talking about his book, The Edge of Medicine, The Technology That Will Change Our Lives. I'm joined in the studio with fellow medical student Casey McCluskey. Casey, when Dr. Hansen was talking about the introduction of technology in medicine and, and balancing that with patient care, I know from my personal experiences being in the hospital room, for example, when doctors are use, using electronic medical records, sometimes it can feel like the third patient in the room. You know, you have the patient doctor-patient relationship, and now there's this third entity. It seems like sometimes it can be hard to balance. What do you think? No, I think that's a great point, and I think that electronic medical records are a great example of the struggle that we could have with technology. I think they're a great advancement in the ability to put your medical chart and all of your medical information in one place, but we're very much lagging behind in the ability to disseminate and share that information with different doctors and different medical systems. Um, And I think he brought a great point up, you know, kind of comparing it with how easy it is to transfer accounts in banks, but we can't, uh, you know, seem to do that with our electronic medical records. So we have, you know, some advancements that we need to make with that. But on the same side, I think another advancement that we need to make with electronic medical records are um, getting doctors used to using them while not focusing on them completely and ignoring the patient. Like you said, it seems to be the third entity in the room, and sometimes it tends to get more attention than the actual patient themselves. Um, And that's a challenge, especially for doctors who are not as technologically advanced (laughs) as others and kind of new to the computer world um, to remember that we're here for the patients, not just to type in information Um, So I think that that certainly is a challenge that a lot of us face as we get used to typing in information and clicking on boxes while still making the patient feel like they have our 100% attention. Yeah, and admittedly, I'm a techie, so I guess full disclosure there, um, all for technology and medicine. And I think maybe some of this stems from the lack of exposure in medical training. So in our medical schools, I wonder how many medical schools out there use electronic medical records in their actual documentation. You and I trained on paper soap notes. You know, we were writing it and doing it all freehand. I know some schools out there doing it, and I know that's the tr- the direction in which we're going, but how can we expect our future physicians to be able to navigate, you know, the nuances of patient care and interacting while having this device in front of them that's kind of distracting them at the same time? I know we certainly hear about the art of medicine and the practice of medicine all the time, and I think this is one more... It's one more tool we need to practice with and learn how to navigate with the patient encounter and still keeping the patient as number one. And Dr. Hansen also mentioned a number of other technologies that could pose a similar challenge, Um, maybe not so much in the actual implementation of it, but perhaps the ethical aspects of it or uh, making it available to everyone. For example, he, he mentioned genomics in medicine. I know that a few health centers in the U.S. are actually doing that. They're having patients getting their genome scanned and seeing what medicines are most appropriate for them. Or, you know, we know that from our training that not all drugs work equally for everybody based on how our bodies metabolize them. And so knowing what your genes are and knowing what genes are active in you 
can help a doctor select the medicines that best treat you, for example. And I certainly have a little bit of experience with that. Um, When I was diagnosed with breast cancer, they did the genetic testing on me. Um, I was tested for the BRCA1 and 2 genes, um, not necessarily for my benefit, but for my family's benefit to see if they needed to be more aware of their own bodies and and get tested themselves more frequently or more regularly. Um, I luckily, uh, you know, turned out not to have the the breast cancer gene, but had I been positive, one of the things that would have come up was who then in my family gets tested and who pays for it. It is not a cheap test and not all insurance companies will pay for it. And so that's one of the questions I think that I always um, raise in these discussions Mm -hmm. is, we have this technology available, but who is actually able to use it? And not only that, uh, with HER2 new, there's a gene in breast cancer that we have drugs for. And Dr. Hansen mentioned some of this, you know, the way the direction the medicine is heading is that we're going to have medicines or chemotherapies that are specifically targeted to sites that are vulnerable in people who have certain types of cancer. And HER2 new is one of the, the cancers in which we have medication that specifically targets those receptors. And so I think that's a very valid question. This is the future of medicine. And so these are issues that I don't know. I, I don't know if they're very, they're dealt with sufficiently. I do know with that specific receptor, it is now common practice that everyone gets tested for that. And that's part of the, the basic panel that you get scanned for. So um, I see that that advancement has really come into play in the everyday. It's not just who can afford it. But we don't tend to hear a lot about the advancements that aren't as successful And I think there is a reason that physicians are prone to move a little bit slower when putting some of the new techniques into everyday medicine, because we don't always have evidence to prove their effectiveness five to 10 years out. Um, How do you see us being able to navigate the line between putting advancements into play that we see are making progress at the same time being cautionary to not push the envelope too far too fast? I think that's an interesting discussion because I think it involves uh, pharmaceuticals, device manufacturers, and, you know, those who tend to profit from these advancements as well. And I think the challenge there is that because they're making some type of profit off of it, the person who undergoes, you know, the the trial or the the test treatments should have some sense of comfort knowing that they're going to be taken care of if things don't go in the best way. Obviously, this is the art of medicine. There, you know, the science is being developed, and it's not perfect. And you know, for at least for our lifetimes, probably is never going to be perfect. But things go, things will go wrong. And so, you need to know that if you're going to enroll in a trial, for example, that has the potential to help others, that one, you'll be treated respectfully and with integrity, and given all the data, and two, that whatever happens, the company that's going to benefit from the data that you provide them through trying their drugs or their devices, that they'll be there for you when you need them. So when these devices don't work or when the treatments fail, that they're there to be there at the end of your life and help you through it as well. I mean, obviously, a lot of these treatments are for terminal patients where there is no cure. So anything is better than that. Um, But that doesn't necessarily make it humane, for example. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point to remember that we're, we have to put our patients first, and mm-hmm. it's it's each individual in front of us and not necessarily um, the overall advancements that we're making in medicine in general. Um, really, patient care needs to be at the forefront, and they need to be felt like they're taken care of. Well, that and medicine is an imperfect science. You know, there, just because you have a medicine, people respond differently. And 
with the newer meds, we don't know, like you said, we don't know what the, the effects are going to be 10 years from now. So how can we necessarily hold these companies liable or hold the manufacturers liable if they didn't know? I mean, obviously it takes, they've got to demonstrate that they've took all the, that they've taken all the necessary precautions to, to make sure that they've detected anything early. But, you know, with Vioxx, for example, maybe there was a cover up, maybe there wasn't with that medication in terms of the people developing cardiovascular problems after taking the pain medication. So, you know, it's a big controversy right now. It's very hot. Uh, it's a very hot topic. But I think as long as these companies act with integrity and, and are forthright and continue the research and search for cures, and I think the breakthroughs that are made here in the U.S. spill over to the rest of the world, so the whole world benefits from what's going on in the United States. And I think that's, for me, it's very exciting. I think it is exciting. And at the same time, I also very much appreciate doctors who are a little more thoughtful and moving a little bit slower rather than jumping on bandwagons of what's hot and what's in fad, as um, Dr. Hansen said about, um, you know, different new techniques that come up. I think that it's an important caution that we oh, definitely. we need to use, you know, when when new techniques and advancements arise. Sure. When, te- when you involve technology in medicine, I mean, you're dealing with human lives. You're dealing with human lives. You're not dealing with a car. You're not dealing with a computer, a gadget that, you know, if it fails, it fails. No big deal. No one's going to die. But the consequences of medical advancements uh, and medical technology are drastic. You know, the, these are things you can't undo many of the times. And so I think it is wise to walk with caution. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. William Hansen. Again, his book is entitled The Edge of Medicine, The Technology That Will Change Our Lives. Next week on Radio Rounds, be sure to tune in as our featured guest will be Dr. Robert Arsisi, Director of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology at Johns Hopkins, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of Pediatric Blood and Cancer Magazine. He played the primary role in conceiving and producing the Emmy Award-winning documentary, A Lion in the House. No doubt an interesting and exciting episode. Look forward to that next week on Radio Rounds. You can tune in every Sunday at noon Eastern Time on WWSU 106.9 FM and Sundays at midnight on WYSO 91.3 FM. And of course, you can also listen live on www.radiorounds.org. Also on our website, be sure to check out this week's Writing Rounds segment entitled With Great Power Comes Great Responsibility by Writing Rounds contributor Matthew Fanus. Matthew is a third-year medical student at the University of Cincinnati. In this post, he details a deeply disturbing ethical situation he found himself in during a lecture in the second year of medical school. Writing Rounds is a place for any of our listeners and contributors to provide their own opinions on medicine and healthcare. You can contact the Radio Rounds team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All that information is on radiorounds.org, where you can listen to all past episodes on demand. These podcasts are also available as free downloads on iTunes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds. We'd now like to thank and credit those who made today's show possible. The American Medical Association's MedPlus Advantage Insurance Program is teaming up with Radio Rounds and Timmy Global Health to bring you Take a Trip with Timmy, an essay and video contest for interested students. The winner will spend two to three weeks working with Timmy Global Health medical teams and Timmy partner organizations in either Ecuador or Guatemala. As part of the prize package, the winning student will receive a free iPad 2 and digital underwater GPS camera. They'll also have an opportunity to blog each day about healthcare in the developing world while in their country. 
Submissions will be accepted in December 2011, and the winner will be selected and notified in early 2012. Stay tuned for more rules and details, and in the meantime, you can always check out more at www.takeatripwithtimmy.com. Radio Rounds is proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network, online at studentdoctor.net. Applying to medical school? Learn about what life is like as a med student in different programs from current and former students. Check out the SDN Medical School Feedback Database at studentdoctor.net. We'd like to thank Avash Cholera and our producers Sarah Buckingham and Yojin Patel for their work on today's episode, and also thanks to our creative and production teams here at Radio Rounds. Please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds or of the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. Join us next week or download our next podcast and be sure to check out RadioRounds.org for more information. Have a great week, everyone, and thank you for listening. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm Shami Das. And I'm Casey McCluskey. And one day, we'll, we'll be, be your, your doctors. doctors. Here come the Radio Welcome to Radio Rounds. <laughs>